0: Hello, Gut Check Project fans and KBMD Health family. Welcome to Gut Check Project. I'm your host, Eric Rieger, joined by my other host, Dr. Ken Brown. Ken, what's happening?
1: Well, once again, we have a fantastic show. We are here with the good Dr. Nathan Goodyear, MD, MDH. He is board certified in gynecology, specializing in pelvic floor gynecology, and then got his doctorate in homeopathic medicine. Now he is an integrative cancer expert and owner of Brio Medical. He is also the host of the podcast, Practicing, and a renowned author. He has written two books, Man, Boob Nation, and Total Testosterone Transformation. Dr. Goodyear, welcome to the Get Check Project.
2: Ken, Eric, it's great to uh, talk to y'all. Met you last night. We found we had a lot in common. Great to be here.
0: Heck yeah. Well, you also have good shirts, too, and I meant to get myself or uh, bring one from the closet. I should have. I don't live that far from here, and I've... Uh, now, well, I just kind of feel lame now that I you showed up I, with another I, color. I shirt. thought
2: we had coordinated our conversation last <laughs> night that we were going to match up, and we just didn't. Uh. Cool.
1: <laughs> and we at least got the memo for the funny sock at Dr. Goodyear. And yeah, all. I got you, that. You're kind of showing up with the weak sock action.
0: So, this is the part of the show where Kim Powell's <laughs> on his face, <laughs> and, uh, and we just see what happens. That's hey. Um, so you're, we're here at the FLCCC conference here in Fort Worth and you're a presenter and a speaker. Talk a little bit about your association with that and we'll just kind of get started from there.
2: Yeah. So, you know, um, met, actually I've spoken about Paul Merrick for quite a while because I've been dealing in the world of high dose vitamin C and the treatment of cancer for a long, long time. And so I've been speaking about that a long time, but, and so in that reference, I would always mention Dr. Paul Merrick because of his you know, groundbreaking research on vitamin C and sepsis. And again, there's nobody more published just about in the world on sepsis and critical care than him. And so that brought a lot of weight, of course, to my lectures because it brought solid study evidence. And that's something that sometimes in the integrative world, people look at and they say, there's no evidence. It's like, actually, there's a lot of evidence. You just got to look, you got to read. And the average doctor does not So from that standpoint, I, I was very familiar with Paul and I was very familiar with basically his um, unfortunate, you know, outcome during the you know, COVID pandemic and uh, broke my heart. And then I happened to be speaking at a conference last year and ran into him. And, you know, I've always seen Paul, always you know, read his articles. And then when you meet him, it's like, he's just a big teddy bear, you know, and he probably won't like that, but he's got a big heart. And so I just, we really kind of connected. And so about four or five months ago, he said, Hey, would you like to speak on the FLCCC webinar? I said sure, and then then he said, "You want to speak at our conference?" I was like, "Sure, I got a big mouth." So <laughs> and and then that's that's how it happened. So and so I'm talking about um, you know SARS-CoV-2, spike proteins, cancer, but I want to give it a little bit of a twist at the end, hope, because you know when you deal with cancer, there's no word I think even more so than COVID that brings more fear, than that word, cancer. And so what I tell my patients is that you know, fear is a choice. It'll come on you, but you can choose to let it control you. Hope equally is a choice. So what I tell our patients is to choose hope over fear. So I always want to take a, you know, a hope and a positive slant to what we're, what we're dealing with right now, because there is the potential for us to do some great things. And this conference, the FLCCC, the work you guys are doing through your podcast, the work you're doing through your practice, these are hope action points. They are points of hope that people can take and run with instead of just focusing on the negative. And
0: I want to highlight that you didn't just hop on uh, your approach to cancer simply because of COVID. This is something you've been working on for quite some time. Oh, yeah. And so basically, uh, it seems to me like you probably fell into it. You know I mean? are board certified, all of the accolades that Ken mentioned, but- you also are a functional medicine doctor, and so re- really, you've kind of bridged a lot of worlds together to bring the best care possible to those who sign up for your care.
2: You know, it's really interesting. I, I when you look in retrospect, you always see how things lined up in your life, but you can't see them in the moment mm-hmm. that that leads you to where you are. And I'll never forget when I was, uh, you know, in my residency, I went out to San Francisco to a pelvic floor conference. You know, ooh, sounds exciting, right? I Yeah, I would have loved to have focused on the graphics with that, you know, pelvic floor surgery and the graphics associated with the conference. But anyways, (laughs) um, because it's like who came up with this title, but so I went out there and there was a guy that got up there and he was the world at the time. And I can't remember his name, the, the premier expert on pelvic floor anatomy Hmm. Had beautiful artistry of the muscles, innervations, you know, everything beautiful. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, not a, not gross anatomy, you know, not a, not any of those textbooks, but just publications. Beautiful. And he got up there, and he started talking through the anatomy, describing it like you're walking through, uh, you know, a, a setting on a stage. It was beautiful. And then he said, "But I want to let you know something. I've never operated on a patient in my life. I'm a board-certified family practice doctor." Mm-hmm. But what he was highlighting is that his different perspective provided a different approach to the description of the pelvic floor anatomy. Now, at that time, I didn't realize that. But when I got out of my residency and started practicing you know, pelvic floor surgery, I started to you know, immediately move into the integrated world in 2006. And as you move through that, then cancer always kept coming around, always. And there was actually a point in my wellness uh, practice where I had half my patients were cancer. I wasn't primary. Mm -hmm. I was, you know, an adjunct provider, but it's like, I didn't advertise for it. They just showed up. Mm -hmm. They just showed up. And then I actually developed a pheochromocytoma. So leave it to docs to get the weird stuff. And, uh, And, uh, Probably the
0: worst patient too.
2: Oh well, I don't know. I, I mean, my blood pressure. It was pretty. It was actually pretty short and sweet because I started running and um, got a headache. Had to stop because my head was pounding. How high was your blood pressure? Yeah, I'll get to that in just a second. Oh, okay. So, um, so then the you know, anesthesia and Eric just can't let that go. <laughs> yeah. He's like, "Oh, so, I want right to know right Cancel yeah, this yeah. case. <laughs> so, so then, so then I, you know, I'm a doctor, so I'm not a good patient. So the next day, I tried to do the same thing. And I'm out running, and I have to stop. My head's pounding, and so I have to call my wife to get me to get her to come pick me up because I couldn't. So she picks me up. She said, "Okay, something's wrong." Mm-hmm. So blood pressure ended up being 300 over 130. What? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So that's so, high, that's Ken. Yeah. <laughs> so so it's like so I'm just a simple country butt doctor. You um <laughs> to fill me no, in at times. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, you know, so it was stroke level. So it's not like I had a lot of ability to do a lot of integrated things to try to control that I was going to, I was going to stroke. But you know, what's really interesting is, so went into surgery at a, you know, they said a four centimeter tumor, my right adrenal. So they took, they just took the adrenal out. And, uh, I can remember being on the table because all the times in surgery, I can remember, okay, count back, count down from 10, you know, the propofol is going to come in and you're going to go right to sleep. I got on the bed and I was like, oh, there's the... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so that next morning I was in ICU, and uh, the um, anesthesiologist comes in and he goes, "Wow, you almost stroked on the table. I don't know how you didn't stroke." And I was like, "Well, that thanks a lot. Mm-hmm. That's nice." <laughs> then the surgeon comes in. And he said, "I don't know how you didn't stroke." Like, "Wow, how 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 bad was it?" They said, "Oh yeah, w- once once we got in there, it went higher." I said, "How high?" He said, "You don't want to know." He said, we moved as quick as we could to clamp that thing. He said, we thought you were going to stroke. But anyways, from that standpoint, you know, now I'm fine. Sure. Good. And, um, but it was at that point that I transitioned. I knew that I needed to just do cancer. I knew that was my calling. And in fact, when we moved to Arizona, I moved out there specifically to just do integrative cancer. And I, I can remember telling my wife as we drove out there, I said, you know, there's no going back. She said, oh, I know. I said, I said, no, no, no. We've been doing functional and integrated medicine. This is different. This is cancer. There is no going back from this. And so and it's been full board forward since. And it's been the best thing of my life, but it's taken everything of my career to bring it to this point.
1: It's when you were discussing this with your wife, as somebody that is that is in a surgical subspecialty, we know that really in medicine, if you're doing procedures you're the breadwinner, you're bringing money home. So there was a discussion where you're like, look, we're going to take a big step back financially. This is my passion and calling. I mean, and that was like, how did that conversation go?
2: You know, one of the things I'll have to, I'll have to really give kudos to my wife. She dresses me, so I, I don't know what I would do if I didn't have her, because I'd probably be walking around naked, which wouldn't be socially acceptable. Uh, (laughs) So I actually walked in from a conference one day and there was a, there was one of these shirts on the bed and I said, oh, is that your new shirt for dinner? She said, no, it's yours. Put it on. You're wearing it for dinner. (laughs) It's like, okay. Uh, But she's always been very supportive of me. And uh, so she's been my right, right hand. And uh, she's always been there to, you know, really help me. And it's, she's been a blessing And uh, so when we talked about that, because we knew there was great risk associated with it, there's great risks with it now. There will be great risks with it moving forward. There shouldn't be because it's about the patients. It's about healing. But there is. And she was 120% behind it. It's like today, I'm going to drop some bombs. And I couldn't sleep last night. And she was like, oh, just drop them. Yeah. Just drop them. And I was like, okay, I'm going to drop them. So getting
0: into functional medicine, uh, my dad passed from cancer almost seven years ago. And one of, the, one of the offerings was that they were going to do a targeted approach towards his cancer. And uh, being an anesthesia side, it's not really something that I see that often or that I have to certainly deal with or navigate. So I was curious, where is... What is targeted? It sounds kind of like a marketing term. And I dug a little bit deeper, and actually it it looked to me like the origins actually began using natural approaches to cancer. Is that how you kind of understand that? It
2: began that way, and it is still that way. Okay, let's talk about that. And, you know, it's really interesting when people look at, you know, natural, holistic, and integrative, what I tell them, you know, natural is, you know, people think it's natural, and it is. But natural doesn't mean easy. And it sure doesn't mean, you know, broad. It doesn't mean general. It's precision. The word precision, I'm a, I'm a word freak. I like to write. I think I mentioned that last night. And I like etymology, which is the word origin, historical references. Because I think out of history, words provide context. Mm-hmm. And uh, precision means accuracy. The elimination of unnecessary. So that's what precision means. And when you look at, for example, what we do... Just a quick correction. I'm sorry. I'm the medical director. I'm not the owner. Oh, so that's okay. Rusty might get a little perturbed about that. He didn't know I I supplanted him. (laughs) He's the owner. Wait a second. What happened? Hostile takeover. Um, But uh, so looking at that, what we do is we do you know we'll do testing of the tumor. We'll do genomic testing. We'll Mm -hmm. do proteomic testing. We'll do transcriptomic testing, and in that we'll be very specific in the mechanism of what we're doing. So let me give you an example. Uh, Say you have colorectal cancer, you have CRAS positive, which is fairly common in Mm -hmm. colorectal cancer. Vitamin C works beautiful there. Mm. Specifically, that CRAS targets BRAF, targets the glute receptors, uptakes sugar, very active glycolytic metabolic pathways. Vitamin C, boom, works right there. In fact, studies have shown that. So being natural and then being holistic and being integrative actually doesn't mean you're unscientific or unevidence or unprecise. In fact, being in the science, being in the evidence, I believe requires one to be more integrative, more natural, and more holistic. Well, so vitamin C seems to be,
0: or it shouldn't seem to be, it's, it's something that's often ignored, certainly by the um, normal approaches, which is probably why uh, Dr. Merrick that you referenced earlier was uh, more or less... Faced a lot of criticism where he was, and he's the one who's done a lot of research around vitamin C. Maybe we should get into that because I think that this is something that you obviously uh, use. Um, I think I've, I've, I've heard you mention in the past that uh, maybe even said it yesterday that y'all check plasma levels oh, yeah. where other physicians don't really know to check that. So let's just kind of get into vitamin C. What's, what's that approach and how does that look?
2: Yeah. So, you know, if you put somebody on a blood pressure medicine, they come in, so say it was you know three hundred one thirty, and they decided to put me on a blood pressure medicine. They're they're not just going to have me come back. How do you feel? Oh, I feel fine. Okay, then you're good. You know they're going to recheck your levels, or in that case, your blood pressure, to to verify that that dose is being appropriate. Mm-hmm. And you look at that in other areas of medicine, you know peak trough levels of antibiotics, et cetera. We need to make sure we're achieving a therapeutic level. Sometimes what happens in this move to integrative medicine, people lose that connection with the evidence. So when conventional doctors say that somebody is just giving 50 grams vitamin C to everybody with cancer, no matter if they're six foot six, three thirty, or five foot two, one hundred and twenty, I would agree with that conventional doc, and I am one of those. Mm-hmm. Okay, but I'm also an MD homeopath. They're not using proper evidence to guide their therapeutic approach, so in that they're correct. But then to take that and extrapolate to say that vitamin C does not work or has no evidence behind it, they're taking a jump too far. And they don't know what they're talking about there. Because if you give vitamin C therapeutically, Mm -hmm. that is IV, IV and oral vitamin C are very different. Oral vitamin C is only antioxidative. So if a radiologist says, this is going to counter my radiation effect, he's right. But if you give it IV and you give it therapeutically, it now becomes Mm pro-oxidative. And what's really interesting about that, they've actually shown that in the body or in mouse models... The healthy cells, the healthy tissue, the vitamin C still has that protective benefit, but in the cancer, it has a pro-oxidative destructive benefit. It'll deplete the cancer cells of the reduced form of glutathione. It will deplete it of NAD, so it creates an energy crisis, it creates a detoxification crisis, and it doesn't do that in the healthy cells. And you see this in natural medicine. Photodynamic therapy is the same way. It'll deplete cancer cells of, in, of reduced glutathione, but it doesn't do it in the healthy cells. That's the beauty of natural medicine. It really seems to hit the different environments differently. So with vitamin C, when you dose it therapeutically, you have to start it off at one point five grams per kilogram, okay? Which is high, and that's where you start. Start, yeah. This is with vit- this is with cancer because the more tumor burden there is, the more weight there is with the individual, the more stress there is. All these things can ratchet that up then you have to check the plasma levels. And then from that standpoint, and this is going back to um, <clears throat> mid-1990s, looking at peak plasma levels in inducing peak uh, cytotoxicity of cancer cells, uh-huh. then that's where we gauge where that level is. Now, from that, we have to extrapolate a little bit how that gets into the extracellular space, how that reaches the tumor and penetrates the entire environment... And all of that, I think some of the data is still lacking, but we know with 350 to 400 milligrams per deciliter, that's the target we want in the plasma.
0: I think it's awesome. So it sounds like that you're describing there is a dualistic approach between oxidative and antioxidative action of one particular molecule, depending upon what type of tissue cell it's
2: encountering, right? So if it's healthy, it's probably going to be antioxidant, right? Well, it, a lot of that there with vitamin C is how you dose it. Okay. Because you cannot... What research has shown is to get that pro-oxidative anti-cancer effect, mm-hmm. you have to achieve, achieve plasma levels of at least 1,000 micromolar. Okay. Okay. With the oral dosing, you can only achieve about maybe 300 to 400 micromolar. So you can, you can never achieve a therapeutic pro-oxidative anti-cancer effect through the oral route. You just cannot.
1: Well, it's interesting because it ends up becoming a laxative when you get high enough. You oh, just yeah, don't absorb yeah. it.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. And so that's... So I actually use that sometimes when people are dealing with chronic constipation and I'm not actively treating them. I'll actually use vitamin C for that. So it's a great tool. Yeah.
0: So when there are studies that try to debunk the therapeutic use of, of vitamin C, but they always seem to miss something or sometimes they... They mentioned that vitamin C didn't work, but it might have worked in one particular area. And I've seen people debate the application of like RAS mutations. What's, the, what's your interpretation of, of what they're missing when they're trying to look at this data?
2: Well, I definitely think that, you know, talking about the precision, the accuracy, the elimination of the unnecessary, um, there's definitely cancer types, histological types, genomic mutation types that are going to be more responsive to certain therapies. And mm-hmm. you see that in the quote-unquote conventional targeted therapies, right? Mm-hmm. So if you have CRAS, you're going to give them, put them on the drug lumacras, okay? So you're going to target those from a conventional standpoint. You wouldn't put that on a, in a patient that has negative CRAS. You, you wouldn't. So if a patient doesn't have the markers that identify vitamin C works well there, don't expect it to really work that well. Right. So, you know, the same concept, but what happens is when somebody moves from conventional to natural, sometimes I think there's a little bit of a light switch that goes off. It's like, no, no, keep it on, keep it on. And so, you know, think, critically think, but of course today we have more So do you use
1: traditional chemotherapeutic agents as well?
2: We do, but we use low dose, okay? You know, so... and and because this doesn't just apply to vitamin C, the reason why I speak so much about vitamin C and I think Mm -hmm. why people focus on it so much Mm -hmm. is because it is kind of that flagship of integrative cancer treatment or integrative medicine. It has been for a long time. So it's out there on the front. And so it comes under brutal attack. And so if it's not defended, then basically they can get into, you know, deeper layers so that's why I, you know, talk about it so much because it is so effective, and it is so important, so evidence based, and it's probably the most published on. But what we do with uh, chemotherapy is really interesting when you look at chemotherapy, and I'll talk about that this morning in the conference. It from a maximum tolerated dose chemotherapy. It is literally born out of war, literally born out of war. One of the uh, chemists who actually brought this, he was instrumental. In using this on the first battlefield, and it was April, uh, April 15th, it was April 22nd, 1915. He was instrumental in bringing chemical warfare to the battlefield. They called him Dr. Death. And he has a quote Death is death no matter how you inflict it. He ended up winning a Nobel Prize, by the oh, way. Geez. Wow. Okay. So, but this, this then became what launched chemotherapy today. So when people say, go to war on cancer, Nixon declared war on cancer in 1971. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, we step outside of medicine and we look at the world and we go, wow, it seems like we're in perpetual war. Yeah, we've been in perpetual war on the body since 1971. But people don't realize that. And when you go to war, you recognize there's the battlefield, but you don't recognize the collateral damage and the death and destruction that you see outside of that. But when you do maximum tolerated dose chemotherapy, that's what you see. But what's really interesting is when you lower the dose, it's called low-dose metronomic chemotherapy. I, I potentiate it with insulin, but low-dose metronomic chemotherapy is actually defined as somewhere between 10 and 30 percent. Now, I like to stay on the lower dose of that, five to 10 percent. It doesn't destroy the immune system. Full dose does. Mm-hmm. They've actually done research looking at breast cancer, colorectal cancer. Full-dose chemotherapy will shrink a primary tumor, but it will spread the cancer, okay? So if you have a stage one, stage two cancer, you go, hey, that's great. But if you then set the stage for stage four, what have we done? We've cut off our nose to spot our face. So lotus metronomic chemotherapy actually, as a concept, was actually originated in, in uh, Mexico in 1938. And actually, the first treatment of a uh, of a human with uh, low dose metronomic chemo was, I think, 1947, by a physician in Mexico City. Um, I actually interviewed his great his grandson Donato Garcia mm-hmm. uh, a couple about a month ago, and uh, kind of told his his family story. And uh, but then there was an oncologist here in the U.S. in 2005 said, "Well, this is pretty interesting. We lower the dose; it doesn't destroy the immune system; it actually stimulates it." It doesn't just kill cancer cells by lowering the dose. You broaden the anti-cancer effects, and now becomes anti-angiogenic. It's like holy cow! So not here's a novel concept. We introduce a treatment that does destroy cancer cells, but it doesn't destroy the body. It heals the body. Mm-hmm. Now it's a chemical that's correct, but if used appropriately, it can actually be. A benefit. And that's why I tell people, you know, a lot of conventional docs look at integrative docs and they say, Oh, you know, you would tell a person that broke their hip to go take more vitamin D. It's like that's absurd. We would tell them, go have surgery. Right. You need to surgically repair that. We don't negate what conventional medicine can do for us. We just have to recognize the proper context of it. And so that's what integrative allows us to bring. Say chemotherapy, but let's use that integratively. Let's use it more holistically to preserve the whole. Well, and that's a problem that's
0: analogous right now. It's like everybody has a tribal position that they want to take, and this isn't everything must be natural or everything must be uh, you know, allopathic. It really needs to be a sensible bridging of the gap oh, so yeah. that we can find solutions.
2: Oh, yeah. But, you know, it's, it's really interesting when you look at the natural, sometimes solutions are there that you just are unaware of. So, for example, looking at uh, you know, edema in the brain, uh, associated with radiation when you have like glioblastomas or brain meds. Mm-hmm. They've actually shown that you can use Boswellia and it's equal to dexamethasone. They got to dose it right, but Boswellia is equal to dexamethasone in reducing that cerebral edema. IV? Oral? Oral. But you can give it IV too. Yeah. See, having that MDH is the only... Unfortunately, I think if, if we ever lose the ability to practice the way we do in Arizona... I will have to leave the country because it's just, this is, you know, it, we, we, can, we can do evidence-based natural therapies there that we just can't in other states. Let me ask you a
1: quick question. Getting back to that low-dose <clears throat> metronomic chemo, the concept introduced in 1938 yeah. and then rediscovered. In the treatment of neurosyphilis. And then rediscovered in 2005. What, are you familiar with the history of oncology research, why they abandoned that and now use multi-drug, high-dose, all of it. Like, how did we go from, wow, it looks like it works here, abandoned it completely and just throw in the kitchen sink at everything, and it seems like the oncology doctors I work with are bright people and everything, but everything's a study. Yeah. They have so many studies going on, and it's just, let's stack this one on top of this one on top of this one.
2: A little bit of a dual track there because the, the original uh Donato Garcia he um was just approaching it because insulin had just been discovered and he was just trying to help improve the cross uh you know delivery across the cell membrane that's all he was trying to do mm-hmm. and he actually was invited to you know premier hospital systems in the US back in the 40s and 50s then when you got out of World War II and that you know everybody talks about the war industrial complex that that medical complex really started to kick into gear and take Mm. off then he became quote-unquote alternative that practice of lotus metronomic chemo with insulin potentiation continued but it moved from the conventional or mainstream for a little bit while to quote-unquote then the alternative because the conventional moved into the maximum tolerated dose chemotherapy in the 2005 that's just where a conventional oncologist said, "Well, this is interesting." So basically, they tried to hijack it and say, "Oh no, look at this! We discovered low-dose metronomic chemo." Like, no, welcome to the party. We've been there for a while, and and but that is what happened. That's what happened. Now he was doing Dr. Chen. He was approaching it from the correct perspective. He was saying, "Full-dose chemo does not." have any angiogen, anti-angiogenic effect, and it has incredible immune, immunodestructive effects. What if we lowered it? So his, his critical thinking was ingenious, but he was rediscovering what was already there. So I think, I think it's a lot of you know, what I call advocacy confusion. Medicine, you know, taking care of patients is an honor and a privilege to serve patients. We are patient advocates only. That's what we do. But what's happened today is doctors have become advocates for everybody but the patient. And and so that loss of advocacy position, I think, is what's created a lot of what you were kind of alluding to. Mm. It's like, wow, we give full dose, we can definitely, you know, knock a tumor out. Yeah, we give them two years, but it comes back stage four and then they're gone. Mm -hmm. But wow, look how much money we make.
1: So... When you say that the full dose causes an anti-immunogenic effect and then this could lead to met, basically metastatic disease, it's interesting how we're looking at this now when we're talking about the COVID vaccine, the immunogenic effects, the IgG4. Yeah. It's Almost there's some similarities there in what you're discussing.
2: Oh, no. Yeah, there's absolutely... Oh, yes. There absolutely are similarities. I mean, the, the World Health Organization, as you know, I say that with a little bit of tongue in cheek, but the World Health Organization estimates that 15 to 20% of all cancers are caused by viruses, not, not associated with, caused mm-hmm. by, vi- by infectious diseases of which viruses are the primary component. And those are called oncoviruses, correct? Correct. All right. Correct. 15 to 20%. I mean, that's... I mean, there's bacteria, H. pylori. Sure. You know that well. HPV mm-hmm. is one. And, you know, anal cancer, obviously, um, looking at, uh, you know, there are parasites mm-hmm. that are oncogenic. So it, it's not, and there's even fungi. So it, it's not just that this is a viral issue. It's really all infectious diseases can contribute, uh, contribute to and or cause cancer. And, th- and that's very different to say it's causative, very different than just associated. Wow. So,
0: I mean, you already brought up COVID and cancer. So what, what have you seen about mm-hmm. where, this, where this cross is? I mean, we've, we can start with the disease and we can move from there, but COVID-19, cancer associations,
2: what's been your, your experience so far? I think one word describes it really well, but it's a word that I think has brought a lot of censorship. Turbo cancer. Okay. I think it's a word that really describes what we've seen. Because, you know, turbo is just, it's an adjective, right? It, it's just describing what you see, but it's a word that you can't say unless it's within the accepted narrative. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll highlight this in a slide this morning in just a little bit how, if it's within, within the accepted narrative, you can use, you can turbocharge away. But if you're talking about cancer, and turbo cancer related to COVID? Oh, no, 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 no. You, you cannot say that. But that's, what, that's a word that I would definitely reference as to what are we seeing. We are seeing cancer that has been in remission that blows up. Mm-hmm. We see cancer that has been controlled. It's not you know, not in no evidence of disease, but it's in a very stable position. And sometimes that's the first step you want to get into if something's just completely out of control. Then you see it just go completely sideways. I very briefly present a couple case studies uh, this morning, very briefly. One is a patient that was in no evidence of disease with stage 4 breast cancer. Uh, 2021, she's driving back from Connecticut for Christmas, and she gets COVID, and it goes absolutely sideways, responds to nothing, and gone in a matter of months. And a patient came into my office not too long ago. Um, esophageal cancer. He got radiation. He had chemo for two and a half years, and then he got injection one, injection two. He was it was stable, and then all of a sudden, spreads to lungs everywhere. When he came in my office, I asked him. I said, "So I always like to hear the story." I said, "Tell me your story." This is what he said. He said, "Oh." The injection, of course, he called it vaccine. The injection is why I'm here. I said, well, really? How so? I'm curious. It caused my cancer to go from a stable situation to make it spread. Patients are not unaware. They're smarter than we give them credit for. And, and one of the things I learned as a gynecologist, which I think was training, if a woman says, you know, I think I really have a problem here. As a, as a physician, I need to be very in tune to that. Because women are very intuitive. Most patients are very intuitive. If they're saying, look, I was fine, and now I'm not, you know, George Orwell said, hey, we're, we're commanded to ignore our eyes and ears. And that's what we're commanded to do right now. But patients are going, I don't care what, you're, what the government's telling me to do. Mm-hmm. I was at least stable. I was in no evidence of disease. And now I'm not. What's the variable there? Infection, injection. What's the direct connection? I'm going to lay out some of the, the evidence that's starting to show up today because it's not just speculative. There's clear evidence of what it's doing. And that's the concern is what legacy is this going to leave? Because this is not just a one-time generational issue. This is a legacy issue. So this is going to be impacted for generations.
0: Well, in, in our bodies, we have tumor suppressors, right, and we also have T3 and T4. What kind of changes have you seen or witnessed with tumor suppressors and our immune response in and around cancer, whether it happens to be infection or injection, as you put it?
2: Well, you look specifically as it relates to this. I'll give you some. It downregulates P53.
0: Oh, that's okay. a major so, tumor yeah, suppressor. Yeah, spike
2: protein. It, it, it down-regulates P53. So that in and of itself shows... The impact, that's a tumor suppressor gene. And so people go, oh, I thought, you know, turning off gene- mutations is typically a, a, a good thing. Well, here it's a bad thing because it's turning off kind of a counter-regulatory mechanism. But some other things that it does is it, it, it really increases nuclear factor kappa B transcription, mm-hmm. which is systemic inflammation, which a 2000 study clearly implicated in, in numerous steps associated with cancer. Numerous. What's really interesting is when you couple lipopolysaccharide, which comes from the gut in most right. cases, gram-negative bacteria, metabolic endotoxemia, diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease, all of, by the way, all of that is a comorbidity for COVID, then lipopolysaccharide with spike proteins, they form complexes together. Whoa, okay. And they this is increase, something not heard they of. increase nac- nuclear factor Kappa B transcription by 50 percent
1: so we talk nf kappa beta we talk the nrf2 anti-inflammatory pathway that's stuff what we talk about obviously in my world lps leaky gut that is the thing associated with dementia and everything else did not know it had an interaction with the spike protein oh yeah oh shit
2: oh yeah well said literally and
1: (laughs) figuratively (laughs) (laughs) well the because this is going through my head right now i have been inundated with patients post COVID or post um, injection that they show up with symptoms of irritable bowel bloating, yeah. SIBO, but small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, yeah. which in itself is a precursor for allowing the LPS to get through. Yeah. So now we're adding fuel to the fire, if that's the case.
2: Oh, we're throwing gas. We're, we're, we're dousing the flames with gasoline. So that's why people go, Oh, this turbo cancer, there's nothing to it. And then you start looking in the biochemistry you start looking in the engineer, not just the what, but the how. And you go, holy, holy cow. It's all there. But we, we have to ignore our eyes and ears. But we can't ignore that anymore because our obligation is for these patients. Yeah. And we have to speak up. We have to. We have to be bold. It's like yesterday, uh, the author James got up there and he was talking. He said, be bold. Be bold being bold you know what you guys are doing is being bold being an integrated practitioner what you did and stepping outside both of you that is incredibly bold there are so many doctors i've come across that want to do that and they don't because they can't so that is bold but speaking out doing podcasts like what you're doing that is incredib- incredibly bold. And history is going to look back on people like you and us and what we're doing, and they're going to say, you know, they were doing the right thing. And the patients know this.
0: Did you know that? Because that's, I mean, I've never had it projected back at us. I think.
1: Yeah, I've always, it's just I was looking at you and you're saying that, and once you singled us out, I'm like, we just love hearing the information. Yeah. Yes. We don't view it as, you know, but in reality, we did get kicked off YouTube. And <laughs> yeah. There you go.
2: Yeah. Which is a badge of honor, right? Yeah. Uh, did, it yeah, seems these the days feelings. it shouldn't be. Yeah. Um, but it's just because there are so many people that won't, you hear the information, but what you're doing is you're sharing it. Okay. You're, you're being a platform for letting patients decide. Well,
1: what's interesting is you probably get less of it because of the integrative approach, but I've had so many patients that will come in and I'll just be like, you know, Hey, how are you? The same thing. It's like, you know, let's talk what's going on. And they're like, ah, mm," kind of hemming and hawing. And I'm like, you can talk to me. It's cool. They're like, listen, doc. And they just sit up and they just unload. It's like, I talked to my other doctor about that. And they just say I'm crazy. And I'm like, no, you're not. Let's, let's see if we can fix you. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I mean, that's, you know, some I think um, when you look at docs there, we have to I think give a little bit of a, a slide there because when you look at it from a conventional standpoint, you know, in their college, they're told what to read. You know, people think when we come out of medical school and residency, we're critical thinkers. No, we're we're highly trained group thinkers is what we are. But thinking outside that box, that's not something we're taught to do well. In fact, what education does really well, and I touch on this a lot in the lecture, uh, the talk here in just a little bit, is we're taught how to collect dots, but we're not taught how to connect them. And and so those doctors are working within their box, and they go, well, within the recommended readings, I don't see any evidence of that. So from their mindset, they're looking at that and go, where there is no evidence.
1: And then when you say the evidence, I complain about this because of being in the natural space, developing natural products, having it thrown back in my face all the time. Well, there is no evidence of this. And a great example was I was preparing a talk um, for a meeting that we were going to in Croatia, and my talk was basically how to keep your microbiome young so that you can stay young. If your microbiome ages or if your microbiome was unhealthy, you're going to be unhealthy. Right. And I went to a, it was a traditional gastroenterology meeting, and a professor came up, and his lecture was supposed to be about probiotics. And he would spent his whole life studying probiotics and he got up and said essentially i'm not going to talk about probiotics because the data is not congruent in human studies we can't consistently do it he's like the future of this is protecting the microbiome but unfortunately there's just no research on how we can manipulate the microbiome and i was preparing for a talk i literally had like 60 articles and then it just dawned on me i'm like the research in a traditional doctor albeit if you're busy all these other things is when a drug rep brings lunch and they hand you a pamphlet and then there's the research. And so anything else that's not spoon fed like that, the knee jerk reaction is, well, there's no evidence to that. Instead of saying, well, I haven't had the time to look at Google scholar, PubMed, whatever the knee jerk is. There's no evidence.
2: Yeah. What I tell, I'll never, I'll tell this story. Um, I try to build time into my schedule every day to read at least three studies. I mean, not just the abstract, but read the whole study. You know, the, the meat of a study is actually in the middle part where everybody skips over and they go to the last couple, you know, sentences or, or, or a paragraph. But I was, I was speaking at a conference years ago and I, and I mentioned that. They go, you know, I try to let them, you got to read, you got to read. Your PubMed's your friend, Google Scholar's your friend, go down the rabbit hole, follow the evidence. It takes you to another study. And that's where really exciting things happen. You read one study and you go, oh, wow, look at that reference. You go to another study, you go, holy cow. And all of a sudden, just lights start coming on. Mm-hmm. And it's like, but then, you know, if you go to PubMed, you can't find it straightforward. But if you go through the studies, it's kind of like you go down that rabbit hole. So this guy said, can I have breakfast with you next, tomorrow morning? I said, sure. So I go in there. I said, so tell me your story, because I, I think relationships and stories are important. And uh, he said, yeah. He said, so I'm a, I run family practice clinic in, in South Carolina. I said, great. He said, yeah, I oversee... My clinic plus four peripheral clinics run by nurse practitioners. I said, wow. I said, so how many patients are you responsible for in a day? He said, about 120 to 125. And he said, and you said you read three studies and you try to read three studies a day. I said, I try. I said, sometimes I'll read more and sometimes I may read less, but that's, I'm always reading a study a day, but usually it's three to five. And he said, I've not found, this is a quote. I'll never forget it. I've not found the need to read a study in 25 years. Right. That's what he said. Now, this is a he, he's a he was a good guy, good family practice doc, seeing 100 responsible for 125 patients roughly a day. You extrapolate that out to a week, a month, and so on. And he hadn't found the need to read a study in 25 years. And, you know, patients would go, what? I thought you were evidence-based. Well, Institute of Medicine article from 2001 said docs, at least in 2001, were practicing at a level that was 17 years behind the current published evidence. That was in 2001. Docs don't read. So that's to get to your point. They don't read. And I don't know that they know how to search to read. Sometimes it's just fun to go down the rabbit hole.
1: Well, and also when the knee-jerk reaction, and we've seen this in the last three years, that if there is evidence, well, that's not in a reputable journal. It's not in the new England or the Lancet retractions. Yeah. Controlled. And so some of that is a little bit frustrating in my end also, because what my suggestion to that doctor would be, Hey, start a podcast because guess what? I've learned more preparing for podcasts from our guests Having to look at journals and just to exactly what you're saying, you see something, go, holy cow, this study came out. You pull something and then you look at the reference and you're like, I'm like, oh, Eric, this is 2001. Oh, yeah. yeah. This yeah. stuff was being published and nobody said a word about it. And I'm just finding it now yeah. because yeah. of a, a
2: question. You go down the you know, rabbit hole. But I, I think you know, minds like yours, I think they are unique and, and mine, because we, we have this sense of curiosity. And really, when you reflect back on what medicine is, it is a science. At its foundation, everybody says science, medicine is a double-blinded, randomized placebo-controlled trial. I jokingly say, where's the double-blinded randomized placebo-controlled trial that shows that a double-blinded randomized placebo-controlled trial is the best form <laughs> of therapy, a <laughs> best form of a study. I mean, it's a joke, but people go, Oh, that's wait, wait a second. What is that? So that thinking, that curiosity, curiosity is, a simp- is, is the foundation of what it means to be a physician, a scientist. Mm-hmm. We simply ask questions, and we see what those answers are to those questions, and we follow that. Today, a lot of what it is, is you answer the question, you then const- so you have the answer, and then you construct the question to give you the answer you want. So we've turned it on its head. We need to get back to that art. It's not the science. I think it's more of an art of the curiosity mind. Well, not only that, we've seen, we've seen just simple things being
0: completely redefined oh. to fit that answer.
2: Well, I'll talk about that in a slide here. Yeah. It's I mean, like, you've, you've, have you read my slides? Uh, <laughs> you know, they, they try to redefine words. Yeah. They try to recontextualize these words. And if you don't, and that's why I think words are so important, because if you don't understand words, they can be redefined, and before you know it, what you thought you knew, you no longer know. I mean, it is, you know, it is a tactic of manipulation that we see. And you see it in Marxist movements across the world, mm. hint, hint. Yeah. You see it, and you see it throughout history. They use words, they redefine language, they redefine words to pit people against each other to turn people away from the truth.
0: And in a wild thing, even though subconsciously you may know that a word that you are far familiar with has been redefined, as they begin to move forward, you're stuck saying, wait, 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 this is not right, this is not right, and next thing you know you've been left behind, and then you're being shunned, then you're being told that you're not conforming, and that you're, quote-unquote, not good.
2: You know, I, I don't remember when I took the Hippocratic Oath where conformity was in that. Right. Do, do you remember that? I will conform to the standards of, you know, my college. No, I will first do no harm. That's what we gave our the oath to. It's, it's not to be conformists. It's to help those patients. And we need to get back to that. I, I say there's four principles that guide me. Mm-hmm. Hope, heal, teach, and serve. It's interesting that when you look at the word hope in Hebrew, it's rofe, it literally means healer, I mean, a physician. So we as physicians, we're healers. So if we were in a group, and so you're in that meeting, if you said, how many docs here are healers? Everybody go, what? what, this guy's crazy. But that's what we are. Doctor in Latin, dossier, it means teacher. So we're teachers that heal, that's what we do. What you're doing through this podcast, which is why I love the podcast medium, is teach, because we're trying to teach patients how to heal themselves, and that's I think that's the most important thing you can do today, almost as a doctor. I totally agree.
0: So one one quick question before we I guess it's not quick, it's just a subject. Um, we've talked about the disease of COVID, and you've hinted at vaccine itself. Have you noticed any similar mechanisms of action possibly either of the disease or the supposed vaccine that has set people up for a result in the turbo cancer as you put it earlier
2: oh yeah <clears throat> i mean you, you you see this in both um you know acute infection mm-hmm. you see it in injection or repeated injection and uh you're starting to see the groundwork for it in you know quote unquote long covid so it's, it's a little bit different in long COVID, but you're seeing the same strategy. You know, it's, as I mentioned, I think I mentioned it to you yesterday, uh, Ken, about looking at pelvic floor surgery back in the early 2000s mm-hmm. when we were using the vaginal mesh. And they actually found that this was creating, creating a chronic inflammatory response, a granulomatous response. So then it would create all this poor healing and they, you know, the, the wound wouldn't heal. And by the way, cancer is called a wound that does not heal. So then they took out the vaginal mesh. And what they then discovered when they went back is, ah, the chronic inflammatory response remained. So COVID, injection, infection, doesn't matter the source or repeated injection, it is going to be similar to that implant. You clear the virus, its impact is left. The inflammation is left. The epigenetic transformation is left. And that's what we're seeing in long COVID. And so in those at high risk of cancer, which when you look at the American population in the Western world, it's really kind of everybody. It's estimated by the year 2030, not just one in two, one in three, but one in one adults, men and women, mm-hmm. will have cancer in their lifetime.
1: You said the epigenetic transformation. Do you have a mechanism of how it's doing that?
2: Uh, a lot of different ways that it does do that, obviously. So there's methylation issues involved you know, associated with inflammation, I think getting chronic turned on. This is early. For example, there's an, uh, there's an article now. It's not looking at COVID, but it's looking at one dose of IFEX intraperitoneally where they actually saw the peak transgenerational inheritance. They called it transgenerational inheritance of pathology. Mm. That's what they called it. Mm. The peak impact of that and it was primarily through methylation in endocrinological function in fertile mice. It peaked at the fifth generation. Whoa. So if we look at where we are now, so if we have to extrapolate that to SARS-CoV-2 or spike protein, we say, okay, it's, it's having methylation effects. I think it's probably more dramatic than that, but it could be the fifth, sixth generation until we see the peak impact of that.
1: Well, that's not terrifying at all.
2: Oh, no. That's why I said we focus on right here and now. But honestly, I think we need to be focusing on what legacy we're leaving. Because that, I think, is where this becomes a little bit more terrifying. Or a lot more. Because we love our kids. Sure. Do anything for them, right? And our grandkids, though I haven't met them, do anything for them. But what have I not done for them now? So what's your piece of advice for people who see this podcast
0: and they begin to wonder, you know, this, this seems, it seems like that we've, we've walked into a bear trap. What can I do for myself, my family, and going forward? Where would you send them?
2: Yeah, well, literally, we have. We, we've not walked into it. We've been forced into it. Sure. And uh, what I would say is there's two emotions here. There's fear and there's hope. Uh, fear is something we can—both of them are choices. Fear can definitely come on us, but we can choose to let it control us. So I always tell our patients, they come in with stage 4 cancer, and most of them recurrent, failed conventional. And I tell them, let's choose hope. Let's not predict what your body can do. I always jokingly say, I, I, forget, I, I must have missed the lecture where we were taught how to play God with a little G and predict people's, you know, oh, you have six months to live. I had a patient one time with stage 4 colorectal cancer, and she was told she had three months to live. Every year for over five and a half years, she went back to walk the floor of the clinic where her oncologist was just so that he would see her. The first year he saw her, he was taken aback. Mm. And then she said every year after that, he would avoid her because he didn't want to see her. Because she said, I outlived your prediction. It's choose hope. And I actually tell our patients, hope it forward. There's evidence to suggest that we can be proactive in this. We don't have to be reactive. We can be proactive through a variety of mechanisms: preventatively, maintenance, early intervention. We can, from a cancer perspective or a non-cancer perspective, but we have to look at this. The greatest threat to longevity today, it's cancer. Clearly, it's cancer. The um, the rule. Um, oh, what's it called the? Uh, there was a study came out in two thousand nineteen. I'm going blank on the acronym for it. But it was, the, um, it was a rural epidemiology study, uh, urban rural epidemiology study, looking at mortality in adults. And what they found is that in high-income con- countries, not only was cancer the number one cause of mortality, but it was over cardiovascular disease by a rate of two to one, two and a half to one. So the greatest threat to longevity is cancer. So when I talk about COVID, I talk about hope. I talk about early prevention, intervention, monitoring. It, it applies to everybody. It doesn't just apply to those with cancer. It applies to everybody. And there's mechanisms of action. There's things we can do. We don't have to be reactive. There's science that backs it up, not the science or the scientist who said he was, but there's science to back up what not we the do. The scientist. Yeah. So, well, you have, to be, you have to clarify the science, right? <laughs> because there was somebody that declared to be the science. Sure. So we have to declare what that means. <laughs> <laughs>
1: A quick question for you, the way that you're describing, and you know, on your website, you discuss hope for the impossible, think the impossible, believe the impossible and deliver the impossible as possible. Yeah. And then when you were discussing hope as a choice and fear as a choice, what, how do you, with your patients help them from their mental perspective to, you're going to help them physically, but it sounds like it's real important that they, that they get in that same frame of mind.
2: Yeah, you know the physical aspect of cancer. I would say is the end road. Okay, Mm -hmm. and it's this sounds weird, but it's the easier part to treat. That doesn't mean it's easy, but it's this that's the harder part. Um, When people come in and they think they can be healed, they think they can heal, then the the largest amount of work is done. People that come in that don't think they can get that be healed, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what drug, what surgery, what, whatever you do, what integrative therapy, holistic therapy, it it's not going to work. you know. And you go, well, where's the evidence for that? Well, there's a whole arena of science around sports medicine. You go up to the plate to bat, you don't see yourself striking out. You hope you see yourself hitting a home run. That doesn't mean you do that every time, but science has shown this directs the physical. And so if... So helping people do that, a lot of our patients come in that way, because,, you know, conventional says, "Oh, you're, you're done. you need hospice." And I will say, "Really? No, I'm not done." So I, we probably have a little bit of a selection bias. They come in knowing what they need to do. Mm-hmm. And they know. Now every now and then we'll get a patient that comes in that they're like, "I don't know. My family wants me here. I, I don't know. I'm tired." And that's a big issue in cancer. They get tired of fighting. Yeah. They get tired, they get weary. And you can see it in them. So what you have to do is you have to have an honest discussion with them, you know, just human to human. You know, You don't have to do anything. You can go live your life for however long that's going to be. You don't have to do anything. But if you want to, if you believe you can, I don't tell them that they can. I said, my job to give you hope is to give you real hope. It's to give you hope in a future however long that future is, it doesn't have a determined timeline of that hope. It's just there's hope. That's where it begins. And so if people can catch on to that, I have seen bodies that are told they can't do things, do it. I've seen stage four breast cancer, bone mets, go away and stay away. Same thing with pancreatic cancer. Mm. What, what, what you can see can be amazing. Now, cancer is cancer. It's a beast. And it is today different than it has been. As time is defined by BC and AD, I think we're going to look at cancer and define it by pre-COVID and post-COVID. Wow. I think it is going to be that, that demarcating. And you've seen different types of cancers? It's not the same. Oh, and I told you this last, uh, last night. In the last year, I've seen three cases of co-primaries, pancreatic and breast, Three. Three. You never see that. Yeah. You never see that. And it's like, what? I mean, I think one of the biggest imp- impacted cancers here is breast in, in women. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Part of it is because over 80% of breast cancers express androgen receptors, Flavio. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so what, what is used to prime the spike protein? Androgen. TMPRSS2. Yeah. That's what he talked about yeah. in the last podcast. Yeah. So you, you start, again, you collect the dots, and you Golly. connect the dots, and you go, wow, there's a cathartic coming. Yeah. Oh, geez. Yeah. And, and then And so then what happens is you start to connect these dots, and then all of a sudden, somebody says, oh, no, 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 you can't connect those dots. Like, why can't I? Right. So, yeah, that's, yeah. So when you just start seeing that, and you get that from rabbit holes, okay? You get that from rabbit holes, and you get it from that curiosity of mind. You get it from that curiosity of mind, which we need more of. We desperately need more of. That doesn't mean when you have a curious mind, you, you uncover something groundbreaking. It just means there's it's, you know, it's, it's a curious mind. You, you want to ask questions. You want to have public, open discourse. That's debate. <laughs>
1: Just, just the fact that you linked our podcast yesterday in an aha moment—that it just hit me now. It didn't hit me yesterday because I wasn't thinking about this. But that's the beauty of putting together curious people of different specialties together, like this well, conference.
2: Well, you got—you know, yeah. That's what I love about this because last night, you know, it's all—you know, you talk to somebody different, and they peak something in your mind that you would have not brought on yourself. And that's why I think bringing people together is such a good thing because it generates thought because we all bring things from a different perspective. You know, doctors, typically, we don't, we don't work well with others. We we're taught to be individuals as, as doctors, as practitioners, but trying to build a team of doctors, which is what I do at Brio medical and my personal brand is uh, uh practicing with uh, Dr. Nathan Goodyear. So a little harm, you know, shameless plug there. Is the podcast. Uh, so, you know, what we want to do is we want to turn those curiosity thoughts on those minds. And the way we do that is when we gauge with others that have a different approach, a different mindset. And so, bringing a team that we do there, I always tell them, I said, look, it's okay that we have a different perspective and skill set. That's actually what we need. We need somebody that says, "Have you ever thought about doing this with it?" It's like, holy cow, no, I haven't. And you see this in the real world. You sit there and look at a problem. You go, I, "That's just not working." It's just not working. And then somebody just comes along and goes, "Yeah," they solve it. And You go, "Whoa, never saw that." Mm. You know, so it's 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 bringing the together together those different skills and mindsets that I think really challenges everything and and really brings a better uh, format for healing, at least for us for cancer. So. I think we need more open debate and discourse. The problem is, you know, in this world today where everybody wins and nobody mm-hmm. loses, you know, the idea of debate has gone away. And debate is not necessarily about winning, it's about the exchange of ideas. And by exchanging ideas, guess what you get? Better ideas. Better um,
0: ideas. Yeah. No, yeah. yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. Well, is that going to. Yeah. I think I want
1: to probably time to go to our hard question section Yeah, at the locals. So it if is. you want to lead us in.
0: Sure. So everybody, if you're joining us on Rumble or on YouTube, that's going to conclude the free portion of episode 106 here with Dr. Nathan Goodyear. And if you would like, you can join us for our raw gut check. Project raw is on locals at gutcheckproject.locals.com. And there we will continue with some of our, uh, preloaded uh, listener questions that have already been submitted here for Dr. Goodyear. And we're going to get a little bit more in depth with him, but thank y'all so much for joining. Be sure to like and share and uh, check us out on uh, Locals and Raw and we'll see y'all next time. This concludes the free portion of the Gut Check Project. For full access to the Raw interviews, just visit gutcheckproject.com. Click the GCP Raw circle and use code HERO for a free month. Plus all of the access with being a supporter of the Gut Check Project. Please share this episode with your friends and thank you for being a part of the Gut Check
1: Project.